you are listening to Good New World Order, episode 20, season 13, for 132-2019. Hi everyone, it's pretty much all Util Linux all episode this time around. That is because we have, what did I say last time, 8 applications, or 8 commands, I guess we could say, to get through. I want to finish up the sbin commands in, in Util Linux, the, 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 the members of util linux in the sbin folder last time we got up to set serial this time we're going to start out with sf disk at first glance sf disk appeared to me to be the sf disk version of gnu parted really that's kind of what it looked like it is not i believe from what i'm gleaning from its man page i think it's geared more towards really modifying partition tables, meaning that they they must exist. The partition m- must exist in order to be modified. For instance, if I do an sfdisk-list slash dev slash sdg, it reports correctly that the thumb drive located at dev sdg is two point, or 1.8 1. Um, gigabytes, so 2 gigs, but, but there's no partition there. And that's correct, that is true. But trying to create a partition on that uh, took me well. I mean, really, I've I haven't gotten it yet. So there are a couple of different ways to do it. You can create a new disk partition interactively, which I'm not interested in. We could we could do it, but what's the point? There are other applications for that. There's GNU Parted. There's FDisk. There's CFDisk. Another option is to create new partition, a, a new partition table from a dump from another drive. So if, for instance, if I do SFDisk dash dash dump slash dev slash, for instance, sda, then I get this nice little readout of everything that that sda contains. So, for instance, label gpt, label id, blah, device, S, uh, dev sda, unit sectors, first lba 34, last lba a big long number, and then dev sda, start equals, and then a number, size equals, and then a number, and so on. So you can, you can, if you dump that information into a file, then you can feed that file back into sfdisk using a redirect. So it would be something like sfdisk slash dev slash sdg being our target, and then a redirect back into that, so a left-facing bracket, or a, a lower, uh, what is it, a less-than angle bracket. And then the the file that you're, you're you're using as your template, really. So, for instance, in this example, sda.dump. That would create the same layout on sdg as we see on sda. Now, of course, in real life, as I do this example, that's not going to work, because sdg is this 2-gigabyte thumb drive, and sda is quite large. But you get the sense of how sfdisk is expected to be used from, from this example, I think. It is, it, it does certain processes... In, in a non-interactive way. It has an interactive function, and on the whole, I'm just not super clear why I would use it personally than using, for instance, Parted for, for most of the things that I do, or Clonezilla for the big actual cloning of hard drive activities that I sometimes get up to once every year. I, I'm not saying that that means that it's a useless application. Obviously, someone has a use for it because someone wrote it, and quite possibly for for that person and for other people using that same workflow, this is absolutely priceless. For me, I, it's not exactly what I, I kind of had hoped it would be, and so that's kind of it for me and SFDisk. It was an interesting thing to look at.
Okay, so next is swap label. Swap label is exactly what it sounds like. It is a way to change the well, print or change the label of a swap area. So the the command is swap label dash capital L or dash dash label, and that if you do that and then give it the path to a device, then you can change the label to whatever string you enter. So for instance, swap label of course this has to be done as root uh, swap label dash dash label penguin slash dev slash sdg if sdg were a swap area and then return and that changes the label to penguin you can also do that for the uuid if you're not familiar what with what a uuid is a uuid it stands for universally unique identifier and it is a string of numbers something like a MAC address, if you know what a MAC address for an Ethernet card is, for instance. If not, don't worry about it, but the idea is that every device, no matter where it comes from, what company uh, output that device, what, what company is shipping that thing, it, it, it is, the, the idea is that everything has a, uni a universally unique identifier. Now, I've never actually looked into it so diligently to know whether whether a universally unique identifier is is like a literal statement like there is literally no other thing out there with the same uuid or if it's just kind of a functional thing where in in a collection of of hardware that is necessarily a subset of all hardware that exists, all items will have a unique identifier. I'm, I'm not sure how universal universal is, but the idea is that if you've got, let's say, 6 or 12 or 32 or 128 hard drives in your system, each one of those, when you pop it into the system, is going to come up with a UUID number by which it can be identified, and the 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 vast improvement on on uh, what is it uh, BIOS, the the UEFI system, is is based largely around UUID. It, it it assumes that the drives that it encounters in a system each have a unique identifier assigned to it. So you can change that unique identifier, and that's swap label dash dash UUID. Again, this is for swap partitions. Don't don't forget. Now that I've wandered off talking about UUIDs, we're still talking about swap areas. So um, swap label dash dash UUID and then specify a new UUID. It must be in the standard eight dash four dash four dash four dash twelve character format, such is uh, such as is output by UUID gen. And again, show it to a, a valid swap partition, so slash dev slash sdg3 or whatever, where sdg3 is a swap partition, and it will now have a new UUID. Of course, you would probably need to update your FS tab if you did that. Okay, next up is swap off, and immediately thereafter is swap on. I remember talking a little bit about swap off and swap on in some other context, I think it was, I was probably clobbering some other thing. Yeah, it was make swap, wasn't it? That's what I was talking about. 
So swap off and swap on is, again, pretty much exactly what it sounds like. If you've got swap area, and if you don't know what swap area is, go listen to the previous episode. I talk a little bit about what that is. A swap area doesn't necessarily need to be enabled. So you can disable swap manually with swap off, and you can enable with swap on. Basically, the command syntax is either swap on or swap off, and then some kind of some kind of identifier. So you could use dash dash. Well, you can use dash dash all. You could use dash capital L for label, or you can use dash capital U to specify the UUID. Remember, like ten seconds ago when we were talking about UUIDs and what they were. So. Uh, it would be swap on, let's say, dash, dash, uh, well, no, dash, capital L, penguin, and then it would it would search for uh, a, a known swap area with a label of penguin, and then enable that, that, that swap. You can also enable or disable a swap file, so it doesn't have to be a device. It doesn't have to be slash dev slash sdg1, or whatever your swap might be. You can... You can do special swap files and enable and disable those by specifying the file path rather than a label or a unique identifier. There are some other things that you can do. For instance, dash dash options. You can then provide uh, special comma separated FS tab compatible options. So maybe dash o discard equals pages comma no fail or something like that, and then the path to the to the to the device slash dev slash gg3 or you could have done that dash l for label or dash u for uuid uh there's a summary so display swap usage summary by device that's kind of cool although you can also get that same information from cat slash proc slash swaps so maybe that's not as useful anymore now that that there's that available um that's about it really i i don't this isn't one of those things that i i anticipate certainly personally using manually but i i i guess that it's probably there for either automated you know other a tool chain that that is working without my knowledge or maybe it's there as a manual override everyone loves a manual override all right next up is switch root now we've we've we just talked a little bit ago about I think again in the previous episode, pivot root, and pivot root was kind of a, a weird, incomplete way of of performing what looks and feels like a chirrut, and switch root is kind of similar, except that rather than pivoting root, it it moves currently mounted slash proc slash dev slash sys and slash run to whatever you define as the new root and it makes the new root the new root file system and starts uh, all of the associated init processes switch root removes recursively all files and directories on the current root file system so if you if you do a switch root you're losing your old file system, your old root. You won't have access to the old root because you've now 
switched root. So you might wonder why you would use this instead of cheroot. And again, you, you probably wouldn't. It's, it's more something that you would be using, for instance, if you were writing an init system or writing some scripts to bootstrap a system where there was an, an init RD, that is an initial RAM disk, and after everything is, is, is set up that was contained in the initial RAM disk, you now need to mount the other partition, the real partition that you want to use as root, and and switch to that as your root file system, kind of almost invisibly, the, the kind of trick the system into into just starting to use a different location as the root system or the the root partition. So if you're not super familiar with the boot process of Linux, I will I will explain at least this much to you. And for the record, there is a fantastic series on Hacker Public Radio, quite old now. It's, it's quite it's from quite a long time ago. It's from Dan Washko of the uh, Linux Link Tech Show. And he goes through the Linux boot process in, I, I want to say painful, but that sounds sounds bad. I, excruciating? That also sounds bad. In great detail. And it is a fascinating, fascinating listen. So if you've not heard that, go seek that out and and give it a listen, because it, it really does. And, and most of it, most of it, or, or some of it has changed because, you know, maybe there are there's UEFI now, and maybe he's talking about BIOS initially, or or maybe there's System D now, and maybe he was talking about the 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 different types, the BSD style and the System V Unix style. It doesn't matter. the 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 concepts remain the same as they often do in in Unix and Linux. So it's it's worth a listen. But what I will say is that if you've if you if you haven't really played around with your your boot process in Linux, then in order to, for instance, get your computer up and running such that um, you can sort of, well, so that, so that the computer itself, the hardware, the motherboard, when you tell your BIOS or your UEFI to, to, to load this particular system, it needs to be able to, you know, as it boots, the current, the Linux kernel starts to sort of be unpacked, and it starts to probe your system to find out what, what your system is made of. Now, if the Linux kernel that you are running does not have, for instance, a JFS module or or JFS code it, it compiled into it, then if it encounters a hard drive with a JFS file system, that is a hard drive that has been formatted in the JFS um, f- format, scheme, whatever, uh, then then it wouldn't, it couldn't mount that hard drive and then read the data off of it. Does that make sense? I mean, in order for the kernel to to be able to mount a hard drive and read data from it, it has to have the code that tells it how to read that hard drive and there are as 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 any computer almost any computer user knows there are two kinds of hard drives right this is wrong information but um i'm just saying this sort of facetiously um there are two kinds of hard drives there are those that are formatted for pc and those that are formatted for mac well actually that's not true there's one kind of hard drive and and you can have lots of different file systems on those hard drives so if your computer or rather if your kernel the thing kind of managing system awareness uh, doesn't know how to to read a file system off of a hard drive then it cannot 
use that hard drive. It'll just kind of, it'll stop and panic. It'll do a kernel panic and just kind of not know what to do. So in that case, some because sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's, for whatever reason, the kernel that you're running doesn't happen to have a very important module that you need in order for your computer to work. And the clever trick around that is you can do these things called an initial RAM disk. And uh, that basically creates, when you're installing all, all of this stuff, uh, with with this command called mkinitrd, which I don't want to go too far into because that'll be something that we find later on, I'm sure, in the package set. But um, it, it creates this little bundle that is to be unpacked and loaded into RAM as the computer boots. And this initial RAM disk is this kind of ephemeral, fake, pretend virtual hard drive that the kernel uses to set your system up. And one of the things in that init RAM disk could be, for instance, in my in this example, the module, the, the code module that is needed to mount and read a JFS hard drive. So now suddenly you've got this kernel that doesn't know what to do with the hard drive that it sees over on slash dev slash SDA. But for now, it's using this initial RAM disk as its root file system. And so it's it's putting things into proc and it's putting things into into slash dev and slash sys and all these other places. And then at the very last minute, once it has loaded the JFS module, you tell it, oh, and by the way, your new root location is here, slash dev slash sda1. And it has a JFS file system, which doesn't scare you anymore, kernel, because now you know how to read that. And so let's mount it and then let's switch root over to it or pivot root or whatever. So that's that's kind of the, the, the likelier use case of switch root and pivot root and things like that. So you probably aren't going to ever use that application, but I figured that was a good opportunity to kind of demystify the boot process for people who don't know. And uh, it's otherwise, I, I feel like it's pretty similar to, to pivot root. Okay, that's good. And if you want more about pivot root and switch root, if you want to try that on a virtual machine, go to um, go to the previous episode, episode 18, uh, 19, and give that a listen because I, I demonstrate how to do that in a virtual machine. Okay, I think it is time. I think we've all earned it. It's time for a coffee break. <laughs> virtual machine. This is a little bit scary, and that's why I am starting up a virtual machine for a command called wipefs. I, I, I imagine you could imagine why I might think that doing that example in a virtual machine is a good idea. So wipefs is, in a weird way, not as scary as it sounds, because if you if you run wipefs without any option, all it does is print which I think is kind of nice. I think what I would have done if I designed the tool myself, uh, 
I would, I would make that an almost, I would make that a fallback behavior, which I, I guess it kind of is, but I would still encourage people to be mindful, I guess, of how they're using WipeFS, and rather than saying, just run WipeFS with no option for, uh, for, for, for a, a, n a non-destructive result, I might also really tell people, I would lie to people and say, WipeFS dash dash print prints the information and and then if someone forgets to put any option at all then it all it does is print it falls back to print and i when i say lie to people i would i would i would tell them to use dash dash print and then i would put in parentheses at the very end default but anyway i didn't design it and no one's complaining that i know of so who knows maybe everyone's happy with it okay so wipefs uh here in my virtual machine if i do an lsblk i get VDA, VDA1, VDA2, VDA2 containing my CentOS root and CentOS swap. This is still that virtual machine from like two or three episodes ago for people keeping track. And and then if I do wipe FS, that's all one string, just WIPEFS slash dev slash VDA, let's do two because I know that there's there's stuff on there. It looks like uh, the offset is 0x218, and the type is LVM2Member. RAID UUID is a string. We talked about UUIDs before the coffee break, and that's what that returns. So then we'll do wipefs slash dev slash VDA1. That tells me that there's an offset of 0x0, and the type is an XFS file system, and gives me the contents and so on. So that's what wipefs does if you're not if you don't tell it to do anything else. That's all right. That's not bad. Um now what you can do after you get that information is you can wipe the or or erase now now stay with me on this one cuz this it's a weird sentence. So it erases file system raid or partition table signatures, which are the magic strings, from the specified device to make the signatures invisible for libblkid. And of course we've used the blkid command before. So libblkid, presumably, I mean I didn't look at the code, but presumably libblkid probably is the main driver of the blkid application. WipeFS does not erase the file system itself, nor any other data from the device. Now, on Slackware, the only other non-destructive thing I could do is do a backup, dash dash backup, and then that would create a backup signature file for for the device that I specify, and I could then restore the signature file with a, a dd command. dd in file would be my backup file, and then the out file would be dev slash sdb, and then a seek number so that you, you're sure that you're not going too far. Uh, byte size is one, and so on. So I'm not going to do that on my Slackware system, although that does sound like a lot of fun. On the CentOS 7.6 system, uh, the util Linux package is, I'm assuming it's got to be greater than the Slackware version that I'm running right now. So yeah, the Slackware version is 2.27. No, it's older on the CentOS on the CentOS system, 2.27 on Slackware, 2.23 on the CentOS 7.6 number. Isn't that interesting? So anyway, there's no backup 
no backup command on the older version of, of wipefs. So I can't do that particular non-destructive thing. What I could do is do wipefs-help, and then I would find that there is a no act, so a dash in or a dash dash no dash act, so that it does everything except the actual write call. Uh, and I could do that, I guess. Let's see if it breaks anything. If it does, I'll have to reinstall this this whole this whole system, the the virtual system, and wouldn't that be annoying? But we're gonna do wipefs dash dash no act no dash act, and then we're gonna do a, a dash dash types xfs because I happen to know that VDA one contains an xfs. So here we go. And then it says, uh, well, it just prints the information from from VDA1. So it hopefully didn't actually do anything. I think it didn't, so that's fine. Yeah, it looks like it's got all of its information there, so I think I'm okay. Now, why would you use this? Well, in theory, uh, there could be a... Uh, the example that I could come across online, it's maybe if you've moved a drive from one system to another, then the the system, your new system might not understand why that particular label or that rather signature is on that device. So you might have to wipe the signature and maybe put some other signature on it, or maybe you need to... Um, wipe the signature and then just grab the file, the contents of the file system, and put it somewhere else. Who knows? It, it would be something that you would you would either be told to do or you would you would investigate and decide that that was the best tool for it. It's definitely once again not one of those tools that you're going to use very often in real life. These are all the the really really low level utilities at this point. I mean, it's util Linux. That's kind of it's in the name. Okay, next up is ZipTool, and this is in util Linux. Amazingly, um, I say amazingly because I just find it, I find it funny that that ZipTool would still be around. So here we go. Um, ZipTool is a Jazz and Zip tool set for iOmega um, drives, Jazz and Zip drives. If if you're new to computers. Uh, as of, you know, I don't know, early 2000s or something, then Jazz and Zip drives were, uh, I believe, tape-based media. And they were, I, as far as I know, highly proprietary. And and I believe, I, I, I vaguely have a memory that there, was, there, there were super strict restrictions on whether your Zip or your Jazz drive would even be readable by a different system. Like if you were on... PC, uh, on Windows, then would it be even at all readable by Mac? And I, I believe it just was no, there was no way to do it. I could be wrong about that, but it, if memory serves, it was, it was pretty clunky. But it was the, it was kind of the semi-affordable mass, um, mass data solution for, for the home user at least. I don't know if it actually ever made its way into into the enterprise because the enterprise had actual tape drives tape tape media that would store massive amounts of data so these i think were were geared more towards the, the everyday computerist and zip i think did a hundred megabytes initially and then i think they came out with sort of an improved version uh 
of 250 megabyte size tape medias for for the zip and then the jazz i believe was the big one and that was uh, i think one gigabyte of of storage and i know there's there's the whole more information can fit on my phone that's in my pocket right now than yeah yeah look point is that there were there was there was there were these tape drives that that could store a lot of information they they came in at a weird time in computing where everyone was wanting more storage but couldn't necessarily afford a whole new hard drive or couldn't afford something something fancy like a big tape drive which they they did make that for home pc users you could you could get a tape drive if you needed it but but and cd's hadn't i think they hadn't they either hadn't come out yet at all, like CDRs, or they were prohibitively expensive. And so Zip and then Jazz drives came into the, onto the scene and sort of carved out a little market for itself. And this is a remnant of that time. And, and is probably one of those great things that... It's probably a really good thing that this exists, because I can't imagine that there is, if I may use a double negative here i can't imagine that there is nobody out there with a jazz or a zip disc sitting around thinking man i would really love to get the data off of those things and i i also can't imagine that either mac or windows today can still could could still process jazz and zip i just can't believe that they would have the 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 kernel modules or whatever they're called in those respective lands uh, for for that, so uh, certainly the drivers—that's what they're called. Um, so Zip Tool and Jazz Tool provide that. They do fancy things like eject. You can eject the the disk out of the drive, and it, it should be noted, I, as far as I know, the the Zip drives and the Jazz drives themselves, the physical drives, were specific to the media. So, for instance, if you had a Zip disk that's 100 megabytes or 250 megabytes then you needed a zip drive. You could not put a zip disk in a jazz drive or a jazz tape or a you know, cartridge in a zip drive. So that was that was something that's something to be aware of. And and obviously you would need these special the special drives themselves in order for this to be useful at all. As you can imagine, I do not have that available to me, so I cannot test these. You could spin down the drive, you could make the disk read only, you could let's see what else, you could uh protect add password protection to the to the media you can lock the door so it can't be ejected you can unlock the drive door and so on so that's um that's the zip tool and i guess kind of kind of like jazz tool i don't really know if there's a separate one for jazz tool or if or if they're both lumped into that but that's that is a zip tool and like i say can't really test that out because i do not have anything approximating the hardware or the media. Next next one and the last one in S bin. So we've we've hit our mark. We've got our we we've we well, I haven't finished it yet, but we we're we're there. We're at the last one of of S bin. ZRAM CTL. Set up and control ZRAM devices. ZRAM is used to quickly set up ZRAM device parameters to reset ZRAM devices and to query the status of used ZRAM devices. If no option is given, all ZRAM devices are shown. 
So you remember how we've been talking about swap and swap on and swap off and all that other stuff? It's almost as if though I planned it this way, and honest, I didn't. But ZRAM or, or ZRAM, I'm not really sure how you're supposed to say it. Either way, it was it used to be called CompCache, C-O-M-P-C-A-C-H, creates RAM-based block devices. So it's a little bit like a RAM disk, but uh, as far as I can tell, it's very, very specific to swap. And it it, it 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 enables you to use a chunk of your RAM as swap space. Why would you do that? I really don't know. I, I honestly have no use case for this whatsoever because I thought that the point of swap was that you have run out of RAM. So I'm, I'm really not clear on, on sort of the usefulness of ZRAM, and I would be... I'd be interested in hearing if anyone has insight into why why that's something that is necessary. Maybe it's something that you can do in an init RD uh, while 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 the swap the actual swap area isn't actually set up. I'm not sure. Anyway, the way that you do it would be first to make sure that ZRAM the the module the kernel module is loaded, and that's not necessarily a given. So that would be mod probe ZRAM. That loads the module if it isn't already loaded. Now you can do zram ctl dash dash find dash dash size, and then we'll do 1024 megabytes. And now it gives me a a device called slash dev slash zram1. Now, if this was the first zram device that you had created, it would be slash dev slash zram. Uh, zero, right? So, so that that creates the ZRAM device. Now we can we need to earmark that as actual swap. So we'll do make swap slash dev slash ZRAM one, and it says it's setting up swap space version one. The size is as expected, no label, and then it gives it a UUID. Now we'll do a ZRAM. Oop, no, we won't. We'll do a swap on, swap on, uh, slash dev slash. Oops slash zram1. I don't know why it's not auto-completing. That's kind of weird. Okay, there we go. Swap on. It has now been... It, it is now... It is now on. If I do amount... Well, how do I how do I find out more information about these things? lsblk. And there's zram1, one gigabyte disk swap. So that that is now being used in my virtual machine as as swap in RAM. I can't imagine what good that does anybody. But anyway, that's how you use the command zram ctl, and that is it. That's all the that's all the contents of util Linux sbin, or or rather all of the all the contents from sbin slash sbin contained in the util Linux package. Next in the list is user bin which has, a, I don't know, a screen full of, of applications, and then we're done with util Linux. So that, that's exciting. But UserBin has some pretty, pretty good stuff. I mean, it's got the old classics like Cal and DDate and Rev, a couple, couple of good ones. So I think, I think it'll, be, it'll be good. It'll, it'll be worth looking at. But I feel like it's uh, cheating to, to start down USRBin straight out of slash SBin, because I said that this episode was all about Utilinux Espen. And that's what we've done. So we're gonna we're gonna end it here and I'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.
Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. no feeling of movement at all, no vibration, hardly any sound.